do 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 do. Or wait, what's the opposite? How about do 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 do? Sad trombone. Uh, Vancouver and Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't come see you right now. We're sorry to say. It's not us. It's the coronavirus. It told us not to come. That's right. Uh, local authorities are shutting down shows of this size. We are not able to come. We are postponing. We will have more information coming as far as rescheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe how it works is your tickets are good if you want to come to that other show. Uh, but we don't know all the details yet, so just bear with us while we try and figure this out. Right, and in the meantime, you can get in touch with the uh, Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall and the Chan Center box offices to figure out what's what. Yeah, they'll probably have good info. But we really apologize for any inconvenience, and we will eventually see you guys, we promise. In the meantime, stay well, wash those hands, and don't panic. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's Jerry. And this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast about universal basic income on the podcast. That's right. UBI, baby. Yeah, it's it's like the most bland set of words I've ever seen strung together in my life. But they have a big, big punch if you really dig into them. Yeah, I found myself kind of, uh, it, was very, it was cool reading all this stuff and researching it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't think I had much of an opinion on it right. before. And I'm going to try to not get too opinionated this time, but... Now you're like, well, all poor people can just die off for all I care. <laughs> no, a lot of this... <laughs> A lot of this made sense to me. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about replacing a bloated, kind of broken system anyway. Because mm-hmm. uh, my first thought was like universal basic income in addition to, um, you know, welfare and food stamps and all, all the other social safety nets. Yeah. But like replacing it with something that's a little more straightforward kind of spoke to me a little bit. Yeah, and I think that speaks to a lot of people, too. And we'll kind of explain a little more, obviously, what we're talking about. But one thing that stuck out to me about that, Chuck, was what about people who are physically incapable of working, of making a living, Mm -hmm. and that this would be their only means of support, or who have aged out of working and, Mm -hmm. and don't have a way to support themselves anymore? Wouldn't you still need some sort of social safety net in addition to that for those people? I don't know if this would replace disability, or would it? I guess it depends so, on who, whose plan. No, some people, there's a conservative economist who we'll talk about later on named Charles Murray, who's like, get rid of everything, this is it. Okay. And he goes on to say, like, well, he wrote like a whole book about it, but I read kind of his synopsis of the book. But he, he kind of explains, like, here's how this could actually work. Um, he doesn't just say that. But there is a sense of, uh, there's definitely a real disdain for the bloated bureaucracy that that is the um, entitlement or welfare system in the United States, for sure. And I get the sense that it's on both sides. So that is kind of an appealing part of this, that this could conceivably replace it under the right circumstances. Yeah, and this also uh, made me think a little bit about the push for a flat tax that happens every so often, Mm -hmm. where it's like, we've got such a convoluted tax system. Can we just settle on a very fair percentage that everyone pays across the board? The problem with that one 
Oh, it's a great idea on its face. Sure, a lot of problems. The problem, the basic problem that I have with it is that it automatically makes it regressive. If you're a millionaire and you pay 10%, that 10% is going to mean a lot less to you than if you're a person living near the poverty line and that 10% means rent or food or mm-hmm. something like that. You know what I mean? So sure. therefore, it's a regressive tax. And I've never heard a good... Uh, way to kind of um, set up that flat tax uh, to make it non-regressive so that 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 doesn't just automatically introduce this other new convoluted tax code too, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's if you look back at the history of te- flat tax proposals, it's usually some super rich old white guy that proposes it. Sure. So that makes you kind of want to go like, well, wait a minute. Right. Can you loophole your way out of that too? Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's not a loophole. It's more just, it's just super aggressive. Right. Um, But But that's that's, a different episode. We've never done a flat tax episode, right? No, I think we should do it. Yeah, we totally should. I'm actually kind of surprised we haven't. But yeah, so that's a totally different episode. But um, what we're talking about instead is called universal basic income. The universal is really important because there's different proposals. But in a universal basic income scheme, the government takes... X number of dollars, say $1,000 a month, mm-hmm. and mails that checkout to every adult, say 18 and over, mm-hmm. in the United States. Everybody. No questions asked, no strings attached. You don't have to be poor. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter what you do with that money. You can go spend it all on crack if you want to. It's your money. Like the cops may bust you for buying crack or smoking crack or whatever, mm-hmm. but you can use it for crack. Or... Ideally, you would use it um, in in myriad other beneficial ways, but I, I guess I'm just trying to point out there's no there's no guidance on how you're to use that money. That's your money, and because it's coming from the federal government and it's guaranteed mm-hmm. basic income, you can rely on that every month, and so you can start to build your life around knowing that at the very least you're going to have a thousand dollars. Tax-free, from what I understand, from the government. That would be so United States to give you $1,000 a month and then take back like 300 of it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so this was, uh, if you were a, a fan of Andrew Yang uh, during his, um, I don't want to say brief presidential bid. Not long enough, I'll tell you that. You like Yang? I like Yang. Yumi was crazy for Yang, but I, I just thought his he had some his good approach, ideas. his ideas were very level-headed, were very apolitical. I just thought he was, I thought he was great. Yeah, he spoke to me too. Um, But he called it the freedom dividend. uh, And that's what we're talking about. A thousand bucks a month. No questions asked. If you were Bill Gates, you get a thousand dollars. If you don't have two pennies to rub together, you get a thousand dollars. And we'll talk, this is one of the few episodes I think where the history uh, addressing that later kind of works. I thought so too. Um, but there is some history beyond him, and he's not the only person. There are a lot of the Bill Gateses and the Zuckerbergs and the Musks of the world. Yeah, it's huge in Silicon Valley right now. It is, and Silicon Valley, as we will learn, is one of the areas that they would uh, that's in the crosshairs for providing uh, this money to a large degree through mm-hmm. taxes because. Uh, one of the fears is, and it's a legit fear, and I know in your existential risks uh, podcast series, you oh, talk about automation and robot robots and things. Yeah. But the fact is we are automating more and more. Uh, 
some say that uh, uh, in the next 12, 10, 12 years, that about 33% of all working Americans will lose their jobs to robots. Do you realize what an increase in unemployment that is? Huge. 33%. I think right now we're at somewhere around 3% unemployment, which is really low. Mm-hmm. It's close, very close to full employment, if not like statistically full employment. 33% all of a sudden. In how many years did you say? It said 12. I mean, that's an estimation. So that's probably like a sky is falling kind of scenario. Maybe. But there are a lot of smart people out there who say, okay, maybe 12 years is a little soon. Maybe that percentage is a little high. Definitely some people will be put out of work in that time. But let's say, let's expand that window to 30 years or 50 years. Then we might start getting into some really high percentages of people who are being put out of work. And not like, you know, you could go over to company B. Mm -hmm. Your job's just gone because we develop machines that are way better and way more efficient and way cheaper at doing that uh, than you are. And so what do you do with those people? And it's not just a question for governments um, of what do you do with that physical person who's now poverty-stricken because right. their job doesn't exist any longer for, for people. But all of those social safety nets and a lot of other stuff that, um, that we have in this country that those people would need to participate in, those are funded by payroll taxes and unemployment tax and stuff that is a tax on labor and employment. And so if you have a person whose job doesn't exist anymore, you can't tax that labor. You can't tax that employment. So now you have the problem of somebody who says, uh, I need this assistance. And then the way of providing that assistance has just been removed because we automated that job away. Right. And there are some people like Bill Gates that are saying, hey, companies that are automating all this stuff, you're avoiding all these payroll taxes now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you should pay it on the robot as well, which what I didn't see necessarily was whether or not that's – and I assume it is – one of the big benefits of automation is that you don't have to pay those payroll taxes any longer. If you're a an, uh, a, a business? Sure. Yeah, that would be a huge – yeah, if you can get rid of people, people are generally expensive. And yes. if you were just strictly a utilitarian business owner, it was – it's very much in your in your favor of – automating whatever jobs you can. Yeah, you're not paying payroll tax. You're not having to pay for that person, the portion of their health care. You don't have to worry about unions striking, people getting sick. Right. So as we become more automated, there are people speaking up and saying, sure, there's also a lot of job creation that happens with automating things. But mm-hmm. the the person that is taking care of your sanitation every week, if that was replaced by a robot self-driving truck, Mm-hmm. and clamper that dumps the garbage in there. The clamper trademark Winco. <laughs> that person is not necessarily going to be the person that can be like, hey, I'll just get a job building these robots too. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, which is ultimately kind of a, it's a supplementary part to this whole discussion of, you know, we're still going to need people to do things like build robots. So how much of this should really be, how much of this attention and effort should be directed toward training people for this new economy? Yeah, and it's the same idea when you talk about alternative energy, teach the coal miner to build wind turbines. Mm -hmm. In an ideal world, all that happens very seamlessly, and you're just like, well, let's just take all these people that are out those jobs and give them the new jobs. It just doesn't work that way all the time. 
Right, right. And and yeah, and you I mean can't like, idealize you, that. No, you can't. And and you shouldn't. Like this is these need to be like frank, stark, sober discussions yeah. that we have about this because we're, we're a little drunk. The, we're talking about <laughs> it doesn't hurt, maybe. <laughs> Just uh, to loosen up, you know. S- some nice maybe some nice homemade thumbprint cookies with the Hershey's kiss in there. Just <laughs> oh man, if you those get are a little good. peckish. Yeah. Um but the but yeah, you do we do need to talk about this stuff because we're talking about human beings. And who who are gamefully employed now, who may be again poverty stricken because their job doesn't exist in the next decade or so. And yes, we need to be thinking about this now. And then other people, Chuck, say, okay, that's a real possibility. This robot, this robot tax, this automated economy that we're clearly moving toward. Mm-hmm. We don't know when it's going to really kick in. Is it going to be twelve years? Is it going to be thirty? Is it going to be fifty? We don't know. But basically, everybody agrees that that is the direction that we're heading. Yes. You would have to be basically cuckoo to argue against that, right? Right. It's just when are the effects really going to be felt? Other people say, yeah, that's a big problem and I'm glad we're thinking about it. But we have had poor people in the United States and a huge inequality gap basically since World War II. It's a national blemish of shame on our character, our country's character, Mm -hmm. that there are people that are just gobsmackingly rich and other people who are gobsmackingly poor and they they deserve to not live in poverty because because they are citizens of the world's wealthiest economy just the fact that they are americans says that they shouldn't have a, a life of poverty because we can provide for them at least enough so that they don't have to be poverty stricken. And that's another argument for universal basic income as well. One that was championed by Martin Luther King. Look, we can take care of people and we should, we have a moral obligation to. And I just realized I suddenly started just talking like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Did you catch that, that like stammering kind of delivery? That was weird. Yeah. My hair turned white just now, didn't it? And shaggy. Yeah. I hope it grows back to normal. So uh, maybe we should take a break here in a minute. Wait, what about my hair? Do you think it's going to go back to normal? (laughs) Let's take a break now. Okay. Bernie. And uh, because that was a good setup. And we'll talk a little bit about what exactly is and some of the pros and cons right after this. All right, so we talked about the freedom dividend uh, from Andrew Yang and his uh, his team, and where you get a thousand dollars a month, whether you're working or not, whether you're rich or poor, mm-hmm. and it, the idea is is that it would replace the safety net programs that all have strings attached. So if you are a part of the SNAP program and you get food stamps, you need to prove that you are below a certain income level. Uh, if you're getting unemployment, you have to show you're looking for work. If you're getting Social Security, then you have paid into that for a number of years. If you have disability, then you have a doctor vouching for you. This is no questions asked, which is a, you know, sounds radical to some people, but other people say it just makes perfect sense. Yep. And and Yang's not the only one to... Um to to address this like you said you know it's kind of a hot topic in silicon valley and has been for the last five six seven years um 
to the point now where it's probably like old news and everybody's moved on to something else like um, debtors prisons are the new thing in Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, but one of the co-founders of Facebook named Chris Hughes, uh, he wrote a book. Um, I can't remember what it's called. It's like I read that it was half memoir, half um, basically policy um, uh, layout. Oh, like here's plan. what I would like to do? Yeah, and it was basically arguing in favor of a universal basic income. And this guy put his money where his mouth is. He actually funded a pilot program in uh, Stockton, I think. That, um, he like said, the, here, take four families. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to give them $100 we'll give them five each. $5 <laughs> each a month. I, no, his was uh, $500 a month. But he hit on something that I saw other people have hit on too, that uh, in addition to universal base, basic income, that's pretty good, but you have to go a little further. And um, people would need to have at least catastrophic health insurance to where if they needed right. surgery or long-term care or something like that, they had insurance that covered it, that those two things would probably help people get by. Um, and then there's plenty of other people running experiments on the stuff that we'll talk about later. But the general idea is that, that yes, you just, no questions asked, no strings attached. You, you get some amount per month just for being an adult. Some other plans say, Maybe per household sure. would be a good way to, to cut it down. Or maybe if the, you make less than a certain amount of money. Sure. But one of the things that about universal basic income typically is that there's no cutoff for wealth. Everybody gets it just for being an American. And that it isn't per household. It's per individual, which um, really is is beneficial for a whole seg segment of society, which are um, unpaid caregivers. Yeah, everybody from stay-at-home moms to people who are caring for their um, their their parent with Alzheimer's. Yeah, those people get a thousand dollars themselves. So now all of a sudden, a household with two adults in it um, who pool their resources has you know twenty-four thousand dollars a year rather than just twelve. Yeah, so that's one of the pros. Um, another is, you know, if you are poverty stricken, if you live, if you're one of the one in eight Americans, which is striking, that lives below the poverty line, mm -hmm. um, you are probably not uh, doing a lot of things to meet your health needs. You're probably not getting up every day and saying, "I need to, I need to work out and eat really healthy." We've talked about the the problem, the food problem in this country. Mm -hmm. And how the poorest people eat the biggest garbage diets because it's cheap. Right. Um, you're not thinking. You're not eating well. You're not exercising. You're not, uh, you know, paying as much attention to your kids doing homework. Sure, if you want to idealize everything, you should be doing all those things. But if you're struggling day to day just to to live and survive, mm -hmm. a lot of these things go by the wayside. So the idea is that uh, a universal ba basic income would provide you with enough of a buffer to where you can tackle some of these other things or you can maybe go back to school and get that degree or start right. your own business. Right. You know? And another, another thing for the, um, very, uh, like the poverty stricken working class, um, they would be given this buffer or this this check that everybody gets for them would be like a floor that would allow them to say, you know what, I don't have to take this job because right. I'm not desperate any longer to put food on the table. So I can hold out for a better job that affords me more dignity uh -huh. or that isn't actually dangerous to do right. um, because the working conditions are so poor. So there's, there's a whole... Um, 
uh, employer exploitation that would largely dissolve when, because the the working class, the the really right around the poverty level working class would have this kind of buffer that they could use to negotiate better working conditions and higher higher wages. Yeah, and we should point out everything we're saying here. We should have this term in front of it is this is the idea that these things will happen. Right. This is all the, th- the in theory. Right. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing I didn't see listed as a pro, which I think is an obvious one, is if you make a certain amount of money, then I imagine a lot of people would treat this twelve grand a year as something that they could just spend, thus propping up uh, the economy, or donate. Right, yeah. I would hope that if you were very wealthy that it would become kind of trendy to just donate this part. Yeah, I haven't seen people talking about that in anything uh, that I've read, and that just seems like a real obvious one to me. Yeah. That, uh, you know, because a lot of people that are doing pretty well and they might get a tax return, and that's like TV time or whatever. Right. Let me go buy that flat screen. Well, actually, if if we can throw out one of the cons— it actually dovetails with what you're talking about, that there's a concern among economists that if all of a sudden every adult over 18 in America was getting $1,000 a month, uh-huh. they would be like, heck yeah, I'm going to get a TV this month. Next month, I'm going to go get some clothes or I'm going to save up a few months and get a, a car That's a much con? sooner than I normally would have. Yes, because if all of a sudden a couple hundred million Americans are all doing this, spending more money way more than we have been before. Oh, I see where this is going. That we would outstrip, the yeah. demand would outstrip supply, and so the prices of goods would go up, mm-hmm. inflation, and so it would cancel out any benefit right. there was from the universal basic income because we would have all c- caused inflation to make prices rise and the cost of goods increase. That's valid. Oh, totally. It's very valid. But what's great about it is people are thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The other thing I like about this, too, is um, it's not just liberals who are crazy about this. Libertarians, too, and um, some conservatives as well, are totally cool with it, too, for a number of reasons. Um, Libertarians like the idea that it it would conceivably replace that bloated welfare state. Mm Mm-hmm. Because libertarians are not ones for big, giant government bureaucracies. Correct. And also in the same vein, that thing about the universal basic income just being like, here's your money. Go do what you want with it. Not, here's some money. You have to spend it on food. And wait, wait, wait. You have to spend it on specifically these types of food. Mm Mm-hmm. But libertarians love it, so because you're all, you're just saying like I'm not I'm the government, and I'm telling you how to spend this money on this particular kind of food. It's here's your money, you know, do what you want with it, which is just libertarian dream kind of stuff. Yeah, and that uh, economist Charles Murray, you said he was a conservative economist. Mm-hmm. He's the one that's like, man, this is would cost less than Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the SNAP program, right, and the entire welfare state. We could get rid of it. And this would actually be better for us in the long run yeah, and, and he, cut down on just the the bureaucracy and the paperwork. And uh, it's just it's a much cleaner system. Yeah. Just the fact that the bureaucracy itself would be slimmed down, yeah. which ironically would put a bunch of people out of work. <laughs> um, that in and of itself would be a cost efficiency savings. Right. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's a, I was looking, I was like, well, how much do we spend on entitlement programs in the United States? And no one knows, apparently. There's like some, I saw a heritage uh, report, which I believe is a conservative think tank, 
they were saying that actually there's like a shadow um, welfare program uh, budget that's like a trillion dollars in addition to the other trillion and a half dollars that's on the books or whatever. Um, so if that's all correct, then this is about the same because the rough estimates are that it cost about $2.3 trillion a year mm-hmm. to mail a $1,000 check every month to every adult over 18 in the United States, roughly 200 million adults, $2.3 trillion a year. But again, you're sending the same check out to every single person over age 18. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself could be very easily automated. So it would be cheaper to actually do, even if the actual amount of money you're shelling out is roughly the same. Yeah, and uh, another one of the pros, and we'll talk about some of the limited studies they've done on this, but uh, an interesting one in Kenya is they had a lot of uh, malnourishment due to drought, and so the Mm -hmm. government said, you know what, instead of giving food aid to vulnerable households, let's do a direct cash test, basically, And they found that about 90% of these people, they bought some food, but 90% of them also used it to launch small businesses or to to restock their herd of goats or whatever, kind of reinvest in themselves. Right. And that's one of the, again, uh, the idealized version is people use this money um, in, in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's these little pilot programs are just coming back with really mixed results. Yeah. But one of the ones I saw, I, I think it was like a Nathan Heller piece in New Yorker from a couple of years ago. And he was talking about that Kenya experiment. And he, he pointed out one, like one heavy drinking um, resident uh, used that money not to go on a bender, but instead to buy like a taxi cab and start his own taxi cab business, bought a couple of like milk cows and um, and did a couple of other things that that were fairly surprising, considering most people would expect that he would he would have just um, squandered it all on booze or gambling or whatever whatever you might expect somebody like that to do right and that's one of the big fears and one of the big arguments against it is. I mean, is it really a good idea to just give $1,000 a month, no strings attached to absolutely everybody, right. including people who are addicted to whatever, mm-hmm. including people who um, are terrible with money, including people who um, are, are con artists, you know, like just because they're Americans. And that's the, I don't know if like that's a, a one of the flaws but also simultaneously one of the the benefits of it is yes the answer is yes everybody gets it and then it's up to that person to to spend it in yeah. the, the best possible way all right should we take another break sure man all right we'll take another break and talk about the criticisms and more like how they're going to pay for this right after this All right. So uh, if you are against this, you probably fall into uh, one of two camps or both. One is that it's expensive and how are you going to pay for this? Mm -hmm. And the other is sort of combined with a lot of uh, ways that certain Americans think, which is like you shouldn't get anything for free. There are no free lunches. And if you do that, then people aren't going to work. They'll just find a way to to live on that 12 grand a year and um, it won't change anything for them. Yeah, which is, you know, 
apparently some of the data that's coming back from these trials are, like I said, they're mixed. So some people um, spend it on a taxi cab and start their own business. And other people are like, I'm, I don't have to work at all. This is great. And that's, that's a big problem. You don't, you don't in a, in a productive economy that relies on human labor, mm-hmm. a, a government program that basically pays people not to work is disastrous, right? And that's one of the, um, the big, the big criticisms of the current welfare system is that it traps people in a cycle of poverty by mm-hmm. disincentivizing them from, from working, where if you reach a certain point with your wages, you lose all of your safety net, you know, you lose your, uh, food stamps, you lose your health care, you lose, um, unemployment, uh, checks, you lose all that stuff because you now are employed. And on the one hand, it makes sense because, you don't need support, supposedly, but the the problem is when it really washes out into practicality, you still do need that support, but you've just been um, booted off of this stuff for working, so it's actually better for you to not work. Um, that's, yeah. that's People say they're worried about the same thing with universal basic income. Yeah, I mean, I guess what's important is the overall picture because there's the idealized version where you give people $12,000 a year and they're like, man, I was laid off. Now I can afford to go back to school mm-hmm. and make my rent every month and get a better job. Or now I can concentrate on health and wellness and invest in my children. Or I can care for my 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 mother or my you know family member who's old. Or I can be a stay at home parent. Or like, just just live less stressed. Yeah, I mean those are the I- idealized versions. There are also, of course, going to be people that gamble it away or drink it away or drug it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- it, the idea is you look at the overall picture. Does the good outweigh the bad or vice versa? Vice versa. I can't mm-hmm. believe I just said that. <laughs> I like it. It's got a little lawn yap to it. You know what I'm saying? So it's that overall picture, but I think we need to talk a little bit about how it would be paid for. We talked a little bit about it, uh, redirecting those Safety net uh, programs right now would be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like one of Yang's proposals or a bunch of different ones. Um, the, uh, a value-added tax of 10%, which I read up a, on that a little bit. It's a little bit confusing to me. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, do we, Should we talk about it, what it is? Well, yeah, I think just a little bit. Essentially, so from what I gathered, and just correct me if I'm wrong, you have a different understanding, but at each stage of production— mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing is taxed. So as like a raw material is sold to a manufacturer Mm -hmm. to make candy, I think I saw that cocoa and all that stuff is taxed at 10%, right? Well then, well then the, the manufacturer turns that cocoa into candy Mm -hmm. and they sell it to a retailer. It's taxed at 10%. Then the retailer sells it to the consumer. It's taxed at 10%. And the government doesn't get 10%, 10%, 10%, like 30% of the total value. They get overall 10% of the total value. That's right. And that that's this value add tax. And it's like they use it in Europe and have for decades now. Basically, everyone but the U.S. has a value added tax. The, the, the great part about it is there's no way around it. You can't hire, from what I saw, you can't hire um, a, a really great accountant to find loopholes in the tax code. Like you're going to pay this 10% tax. It's a sales tax for every stage of a product's life. So companies can't get away with not paying any corporate taxes because they're paying this consumption tax. The problem with it is 
you, the consumer, are still paying that ultimate 10% tax on the end. That's coming out of your pocket, even if some of it's going to the business and some of it's going to the government. In addition to sales still, tax. You're still paying that, right. Uh, I don't know if it's in addition to. I don't think it replaces it, does it? Oh, okay. It might, it might be in addition to. But the thing that Yang's plan, he, this was his big thing, to use a value-added tax to pay for this, um, the basic income, was that this would be mostly on luxury goods okay. and that basic staples and necessities would be exempted from this value-added tax, which would prevent it from being a regressive tax. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, Yang also said, let's tax um, investment income, which would obviously target a certain very small percentage of uh, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, how about we tax carbon polluters, put a carbon tax? Right. Um, some people like Bill Gates, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, he's like, hey, all these companies that are replacing people with robots uh, and skirting payroll taxes and, and uh, medical uh, insurance and stuff like that, why don't you tax them with a robot tax? Right. That every every robot that they replace a human being with or have several human beings with, tax they have it. to pay a tax for every single one or software or something like that. The problem that I saw with that is that no one has any idea how to actually quantify it. Like you can say this robot replaced five factory workers on the factory floor. Right. That's easy enough. But what is like software that helps, you know, right. transfer phone calls or something like that? Yeah, yeah. How, how many people does that displace? It's really hard to say, which is from what I can tell, at least on the Reddit Yang Gang thread, <laughs> um, they explained it that like that's why Yang went with a value added tax because right. co- corporations can't get around it. There's no way to loophole your way out of it, and it's much more quantifiable than you know taxing software. Right. So, but that is so the but the robot tax still captures that same sentiment, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that the people who are the ones who are automating away jobs. Uh-huh are the ones who need to pay for the people who are being put out of jobs. That's kind of the spirit of the robot tax. Right. Um, As far as studies, you know, it's sort of been all over the place. There haven't been, I mean, there have been some studies in Canada and the U.S. and in Europe that seem to indicate that the, hey, these people just won't want to work, isn't really going to be a problem. Like I said, some people will, of course. But overall, these studies are coming back saying, no, people are going to use this in the spirit uh, as it is intended generally. Yeah. Um, so Ruse helped us put this together. He he pointed to um, the Alaska Permanent Fund. I'm not sure where he saw that. but the, yeah, so That's the, so small, though. It's kind of a tough. It's not yeah, exactly it's apples to apples. $1,600 a resident. A year in 2019, they, each resident of Alaska received $1,600. And it is just such a small amount that you couldn't possibly, you know, really work less because of that. So I, I it bet seems Hippie like, Rob would find a way to get by on $1,600 right? bucks a year. <laughs> some, some people would, for sure, right? You know, you can go fish with your bare hands in, yeah. in Alaska. So maybe that could supplement things. But but um, the, the big question is, yeah, what really happens when you give you know, a bunch of people, a large group of people, $12,000 a year, you know, would that mean that they would stop working and not even necessarily stop working, but Mm -hmm. work less? And from what I saw, uh, it it seems to be on both sides of the aisle or both political stripes for economists that, yeah, there probably will be a reduction in um, worked hours, but that it would be nothing that would stall the economy out. People right. are not going to just quit jobs and droves. They just might work a little less. 
But is that necessarily a bad thing? Like, what are they doing with that time? That's kind of what uh, yeah. is the key factor. Sure. Are they volunteering? Are they sitting around playing PlayStation games? Uh, that's some some other economists have said that. There, I, I can't remember what, which one I saw. There was a technology review uh, article, I think I saw, that really kind of, they didn't poo-poo the, the concept. They just poo-pooed some points of it. But one of the things they pointed to is that there are plenty of studies out there that show that when people reduce work hours, they just sit around and watch TV, <laughs> you know? USA. <laughs> you know, but um, the that's not really what you want to do. But again, if you're a libertarian economist, you would say, well, you know, that's, 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 that's your right. People, that is your right. But then you should probably turn in your economist shield because if you're an economist, you kind of want people working. Sure. Um, unless you're John Maynard Keynes. Um, he wrote, we talked about him before, Keynesian economics. Oh, sure. The, usually the super like government spend, can spend its way out of a recession kind of stuff. That all came from Keynes. Yeah. And in, I think, 1933, Keynes wrote this essay. Oh, man, I can't remember the name of it. But some but something about, you know, work and our grandchildren. Something about Team Yang. He said, uh, he basically predicted in 100 years back in 1933 that we would not be working any longer because we would have automated all our jobs away, but everybody would be living a life of leisure. And we missed that mark big time for all, all manner of reasons. But you could you could kind of look at Keynes's prediction and say, well, maybe he was off by 50 years. Maybe it's not 100 years, but the same thing's going to happen 50 years or 150 years from when he predicted it back in 1933. And so some people say, okay, this robot tax idea in principle works really well, or it could work really well, mm-hmm. but we are way premature with this. Right. That this is something we need to start doing 30 years from now, not now. Yeah, yeah. And that it would actually harm our economy if we do it now because there are people who will stop working. We would be paying some people to not work anymore. And we still are adding hundreds of thousands of jobs a, a quarter uh, in the United States alone. We still need human labor. So we don't want to prevent people from doing it. But when when we do automate jobs like gangbusters, um, then yeah, we should take a significant amount of that wealth that's going to be generated by these robots and not only make sure that people have their basic necessities provided for, why not just make it so every single person in America is wealthy yeah. compared to our standards here today just because we we have robots doing all this work and generating all this wealth for us. Why not just share it for everybody? Why should just a handful of people who own the robots have all the wealth while everybody else has been put out of work? Why not just make it so everybody's wealthy because the robots are doing all the work for us, right? Whoa. I, I agree. Whoa. <laughs> and that has caused some people to say, well, wait a minute. It makes you wonder why Silicon Valley is into this whole thing as much as they are right now. Have they seen like that this may be a road that we follow yeah. in the next 20, 30 years? And they're trying to stem the tide now and say, hey, how about we give you guys $10,000 a year? Right. Uh, actually, how about the federal government gives you guys $10,000 a money? year? Just to basically get to be bought off now, yeah, yeah. cheaper now than we would be in the future when the real problem starts to come along. And so there are some people who say it's a good idea in principle, but it it's too soon, and we need to be wary of uh, people who come bearing gifts of $10,000 a year today. Yeah, interesting. 
I thought so too. Uh, we talked to, uh, we promised a little history. This, um, I think you mentioned Keynes, but in the late 1930s, there was a free market economist named Milt, Milton Friedman. I'm sorry, Milton, Milt Friedman, <laughs> who had an idea sort of like this um, to ensure that people had a minimum standard of living. But this was through, it was called a negative income tax. So it essentially works kind of the same way. Once you do your taxes, if you were below a certain threshold, then you would actually get money from the IRS. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned Martin Luther King. What might surprise you is that a little guy named Tricky Dick Nixon. Isn't this surprising? Very surprising. We were surprised by something away. else recently. What was that? Uh, he was the first president that had the first African-American guest in the Lincoln bedroom That's who was right. Sammy Davis Jr., that's right. Yeah. So in 1969, Nixon said, hey, how about this? Why don't we start a program where um, it's the equivalent of about 11, 11 grand a year today where we pay people $1,600 a year plus food stamps. Mm-hmm. If you um, are a family of four that doesn't have an income, Yeah. basically, I mean, here's a quote that says, what I'm proposing is that the federal government build a foundation under the income of every American family that cannot care for itself and wherever in America that family may live. This was Richard Nixon saying this. Yeah, and I mean, that's universal basic income to a uh, to a certain degree. It's not everybody, but he's saying, hey, if you don't have any money and you're an American, then we'll give some to you because you have a, 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 a right to have a very basic level of income. Yeah, it was called the Family Assistance Plan, that, that um, act was, or that bill was. And it went made its way through Congress, and Congress said, no. Senate crazy? said no. But they, there was, a, um, there was a one part of it that the Senate, I guess, said, oh, we like this, though. It was a work requirement. And so from that point on, if you wanted federal assistance, you had to prove that you were working, and that still survives today. And it's been upheld by, you know, not just GOP presidents, but Bill Clinton uh, made sure that that was part of his welfare reforms as well. Yeah, sure. And it came from that. So they said, no, we're going to do away with this guaranteed minimum income, but we like the work requirement part, and that was the legacy of it. Yeah, I mean, one thing is for sure, if this has any traction in the United States, there's going to have to be a lot more data behind these Mm -hmm. trial programs. Mm -hmm. And even if that data comes back in in the positive that this would be a good thing, there would need to be a sea change of of thought change with a lot of Americans about giving people money. Yeah, we would basically have to say, like, the point of life is not work which is not the way Americans think these days. I mean, we might say that we don't, but no, we actually act differently. Like working is largely the purpose of life. Yeah. And there is a lot of like pleasure to be gained from like feeling productive. And I think even if everybody did have, was able to just stop working and be wealthy, people would still find stuff to do. Mm-hmm. You'd still go like garden or learn to, to, to paint. Like you wouldn't just lay around and smoke opium all day or anything like that. <laughs> Most of us wouldn't, right? So um, I, I think there is like a lot of value to work, but um, the, the I forgot where, what started this off. What did you say? Uh, when I was saying there would need to be a sea change of the fact oh, that right, right. the government is giving handouts to people. Right, right. And that, that the value of work was divorced from the yeah. uh, right to, to live life wealthy or, or cared for. That it, would, it would require an enormous change. Although there are programs in place right now that kind of 
kind of resemble this. And some some people say, hey, there's this thing called the earned income tax credit. Right. That um that where it's basically Milton Friedman's negative income tax thing. And you you know Friedman. He he was basically one of the architects of neoliberalism. Yeah. Um so this negative income tax plan he came up with kind of became the earned income tax, which is um or the earned income tax credit, which is if you're below a certain level of income, not only do you not have to pay tax, this tax credit actually pays you back. Like you right. get a check from the IRS rather than vice versa. Yeah. And then it fades out as you go, you know, you get further along the scale of wealth until it's it, it, you don't get anything and you're paying lots of taxes. Or so, you, that's when you got all those great loopholes. <laughs> Right, exactly. No, that's after that part, you know, that's beyond like a a middle class and upper class. That's that 0.1% stuff, right? Right. So um, some people are saying, forget this universal basic income. We've already got this earned income tax credit. Let's expand that. Let's make it so more people are are able to get it. Um, One of the big criticisms is that it uh, incentivizes people to have children that they might not otherwise have. Do you think that's Um, true? Well... Yes, I think it is. From what I from what I've seen, the it, it is at the very least. If you're talking in hypotheticals, like we were talking about the idealized version, yeah, it's at least as real as that. So, like, there are people that are like, "Man, let's go have a few more kids to get those sweet write offs." Well, here's the thing. Let me put it to you like this: If you're a family with three or more kids, mm-hmm. your maximum earned income uh, tax credit is sixty three hundred and eighteen dollars. Mm-hmm. If you have zero kids, your maximum is $510. Yeah, but right? kids are nothing but a money drain. Totally true. And so you remember that conservative, um, the conservative economist, what was his name? Um, Charles what? Murray? Yeah, Charles Murray. He, he pointed out that under the current uh, entitlement welfare system, um, there are programs where you get additional benefits if you have kids, sure. which theoretically um, in, can incentivize somebody to have a kid that they might not otherwise have, right? One of the things that he said, this is a great thing about universal basic income, is it does away with those entitlement programs yeah. and replaces it with that money. And now all of a sudden, you're disincentivized to have a kid you wouldn't otherwise have because all you have is that ten grand, and you can keep it all yourself, or you can have a kid mm-hmm. and have to support your kid with that ten grand because yeah. nobody else is going to help you support the kid, right? There's right. no benefits. You, you don't get ten grand plus two grand for having a kid. Right. You get ten grand no matter you, if you have zero kids or ten kids, right? Yeah. So on the in that sense, it kind of disincentivizes people from having kids where they otherwise wouldn't. But and this is why some GOP people love it, like that whole focus on the family thing. Although the GOP doesn't have the market cornered on families. That's not what I mean to say. <laughs> but there is a bit of a focus on like traditional families and family values. Sure. And this is, I think, who he was kind of speaking to was if you are a, a couple and you pull your, your $10,000 together a year, you've got $20,000, but you're also just having to pay rent once pay for, you know, maybe a car, maybe two, um, groceries for the whole house. Like, like there's a, an economy of scale to f- building a family. And so now it makes sense to have kids more than it does just by yourself with mm-hmm. that 10 grand. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I tell so you what, I, if you want to save all your money, don't have kids or pets. Right, right. That's just basic economy 101. Yeah. yeah. Keep all that sweet dough for yourself. Yeah. 
Exactly. I'm curious to know if, if like you were asking, if that's like, uh, if that actually does happen in real life and to what degree. I don't know, man. I, I just have a hard time believing that there's that much like planning of like, well, let me think here. If I have three kids, I could get back all this tax money and they would cost me this much. Mm-hmm. And here's what the difference would be. So I'm coming out ahead by like $1,000 a year. Right. And even if there are people doing that, like what proportion of the general population do they right. represent? And is it really enough to prevent, you know, taking uh, uh, risks that could have huge payoffs, like something like a universal basic income, just because a few people are going to do it wrong? Yeah. You know, I, I would for me, the answer is no, but I'm not fully sold on a universal basic income now. Right. I'm not either. And I'm also uh, for someone who just said, keep all that sweet money for yourself. This is coming mm-hmm. from someone who has four pets and an adopted child. <laughs> right, it's true. So I'm I'm the biggest chump in the history of chumps. And it, well, and also, if we're getting all, like, you know, self-perspective and all that stuff, we should probably say it's a lot easier for us to be like, Psh, we don't need that universal basic income now because you and I don't necessarily need it. But there are plenty of people who really do need it and oh, who sure. would put it to good use. So maybe we should just keep our fat mouths shut. Well, I would like to think that if this kind of thing came along, I can pay my bills and I would donate that money. There you go. Just start now, Chuck. I already do. <laughs> Chuck, what a great guy. Yeah, you know. Uh, you got anything else? What I feel guilty about is not donating enough time. Oh, yeah. You know, because like yeah, donating know. money is great, but... Feet on the ground, volunteer work is is very valued, valuable and valued. And the best thing you can possibly do is walk around volunteering and throwing money. Just yeah. tossing it. Just like, hey, I'm here to uh, clean up the dog kennels and here's a wad of cash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you have to do it like De Niro. Like, you know, you shake somebody's hand and all of a sudden yeah. you've got like it's a like, 50 whoa. in there. <laughs> How yeah. did that happen? Right. <laughs> And wear a suit while you're cleaning up the dog kennels. Oh, man. I wish I was cool enough to palm a $50 bill without noticing. All it takes is practice. That's right. Um, Okay, well, if you want to know more about universal basic income, just move to Silicon Valley and start talking to people. Although, I I am curious. If it's not hot any longer, what's the new thing? Let me know, Silicon Valley, okay? Let us know. Uh, And since I said let us know, Silicon Valley, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this from a uh, listener I met in person recently. I've been doing, as you know, a little bit of uh, alumnus work with the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing some, uh, did a little speaking thing the other night. Nice. How'd it go? It went great, you know. It went really, really great. I had a lot of fun, and I was able to speak to about 75 semi-recent graduates about podcasting. That's awesome. And uh, everyone was super cool. There were a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of stuff you should know, people in the audience that were just delighted to mm-hmm. get in a small room at a whiskey distillery. Oh, well, that's a great place for it. Big shout out to the ASW Distillery, another alumnus. Nice. Uh, make They make some good stuff. You, you know what's something you'll get a kick out of? What? Is during the Q&A, one of the uh, first questions they said was, what was your reaction when you were first asked to come back and talk to the university students and stuff like that. Right. And I said, my first reaction, honestly, was, what took you so long? <laughs> nice. Like, I've been waiting for years for UGA to, you know, show me a little love. Stick it to them, Chuck. They laughed. They thought it was you, funny. You put them on the spot? I did. I like it. Uh, but this was uh, from Greg Bell, and I met Greg afterward, and he, he told me a great story, and I was like, you know what, send that in an email, and I'll, and I'll read it. 
So he said, uh, hey, Chuck, had the great pleasure of meeting you at the Young Alumni event. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was about six months away from graduating high school and had big plans to become a long-haul truck driver. Uh, I stumbled across your podcast while looking for things to listen to on the road and was hooked. Your show was incredible to me because I didn't think I liked learning, but every Tuesday and Thursday morning, I found myself refreshing my podcast feed just to see what you guys would be talking about. Uh, over the next few months back then, I came to realize that I loved learning, and I loved telling other people about the things I was learning from you both. I uh, talked about you so much that I got my dad and my wife uh, to both start listening, and now we have conversations every time we're together about what episodes we've been listening to. Um, we love this stuff when fa- yeah, families I'll, are... I'll eat this up all day. Yeah, man. Family that listens to stuff you should know together. Uh, what's the second Rare, part? Rarely argues. <laughs> sure. I think that's the same. Uh, you were both a major factor in me ultimately making a decision to stay in school and get my undergrad degree in history. Uh, today, I am an educator at an art museum in North Georgia, and I seriously can't imagine how much different my life would be if I hadn't found stuff you should know when I did. Uh, thank you both so much for the work that you do and the impact you have on so many people around the world. If you ever find yourselves in Cartersville, would like a tour of the Booth Western Art Museum. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I would be more than happy to make that happen. And that is from Greg Bell. And I met Greg and his wife, and they were just great. Super, super cool. Greg Bell is one of the most UGA names I've ever heard in my life. You think? Yeah, aside from maybe Tucker Carlson, and I don't think he went to UGA, but that's a that's a different side of UGA. Greg Bell is like straight ahead UGA name. <laughs> I like it. Greg Bell, freshman. I, I think I might take him up on that um, that uh, museum tour. You offer. love that's, you love your museums. I do, I do. Just got to make it up to Cartersville. That's the downside. No, that'd be great. Uh, well, if you want to get in touch with us like Greg did, apparently show up at Chuck's Speaking Gigs at uh, Whiskey Distilleries. Yeah, there's some uh, more of those coming up if you're a UGA alumnus. Pay attention. That's awesome, Chuck. Seriously, pay attention, everybody. Um, and if you are not a UGA alumnus or you can't make it out to one of these things, you can also get in touch with us via email. Wrap your email up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.